Hey, it's Tom with Forging Ahead, and today I'm lucky enough to have Patrick Campbell, CEO and founder of ProfitWell. So Patrick, why don't you take a minute and introduce yourself, however you like to be introduced. Yeah, it's a loaded question with the Boston crowd here. You know, you can't can't uh, can't do any. You think you're better than me here. Um, so uh, yeah, so Patrick Campbell, founder CEO of a company called ProfitWell. Um, we help subscription companies with their revenue automation. So we got a couple of products. One's a free subscription financial metrics product. You plug it into your billing system and you get all your cool metrics. And then we got some products to help with your churn and cancellations and pricing. Uh, personally, my, my personal background's in econometrics and math. And so hence the nerdy products, I guess, is the way to look at it. Um, I, I'm not a native Bostonian. Um, I learned from a guy in Southie that a native Bostonian, like my grandchildren would be native Bostonians, but not even my children would be Bostonians. Um, but I grew up in Wisconsin and, you know, town with more cows than people. And then, um, I was in Boston for 10 years. We're headquartered in, in Boston. Um, and I recently moved to Utah. So I might have to like end the podcast cause I'm not a, I, I not only am not a native Bostonian, but I've left Boston, which I know is two grave sins there. <laughs> what made you, uh, Settle in Salt Lake. Uh, we did a big. We were looking for like a West Coast office, um, and I realize it's not on the coast. Um, I've gotten that feedback a couple of times. Um, yeah, but we realized uh, basically that um, we did a study of all the West Coast hubs, and um, I was part of the move as well, just because we needed an exec. Um, and so it was one of those things where when we did all the calculations, like San Francisco is way too expensive. Um, you know, LA is LA and it's expensive. And then some of the other hubs weren't either West enough. Um, but I was doing like day trips from Boston to San Francisco and, and I was doing that a couple times a month, which is absolutely brutal going out on the 5am coming back on the red eye. So, um, made sense to kind of be out here and I don't know. I like Utah. It's uh, it's got a good vibe. It actually reminds me a lot of the Boston ecosystem when I started the company back in 2012, where, you know, Boston's got a really long history, right? Route 128, everything like that. But, um, you know, in 2012, right around there, there was kind of this resurgence of a lot of like SaaS and subscription companies, like another wave was coming. Um, but it was different, at least what I was told from previous waves, was that um, everyone was really helpful with one another. Um, it was a very like, hey, who can I intro you to? Whereas previously, it was very like, oh, I got my secrets. I can't tell anyone. Right. And so Utah is very like that, where it's it's on the come up. They had a bunch of IPOs last year and the year before. Um, so there's good cash here. There's a good ecosystem. And they're very, very tight knit. Um, all the stuff with COVID, there's this thing called um, Silicon Slopes, which is kind of cool, um, where it's like the one organization that kind of unifies everybody. Boston, because it's, you know, got a lot of different verticals and a lot more companies. Um, it's got, you know, 17 different trade associations and stuff like that. So it's a little bit, uh, a little bit harder to navigate, but still tight knit, which is good. What, um, just, you know, we're recording this on April 24th, 2020, thinking about opening a West coast office and having a Boston office. Like, what is that going to look like for your team, you know, in the next, yeah. I don't know, pick a time period, pick six months, pick a year, pick two years. Like, I, I don't think anybody knows, but I'm curious to hear how you're thinking about it. Yeah, it's tough, obviously, with all this stuff that's going on right now. But um, I think I think we're just going to stay the course, but it's it's probably going to adjust the timeline a little bit. So I think um, we we actually have an office in Argentina as well. And, and the, the logic has always been, 
like just, you know, experiment and then go to the need. So with Rosario, um, we were competing with like EMC and HubSpot for engineering talent. I mean, HubSpot, I can't remember the exact numbers, but they were given like an entry level engineer that we were talking to like 140 a year. And it was, you know, an entry level engineer, which was like insane. Right. Yeah. I mean, great. Good for them. Like good that's cash, fantastic. Yeah. Like, I think it's great. Like pay people, you know, as much as humanly possible. I'm not against that. It's just more, we just couldn't do it, especially when we were like 12 people. Right. And so, um, we opened up Rosario and the talent there was just fantastic. Um, less expensive, not only from overhead, but also salaries, but we're like paying a, so above market there. So it's a really, really good situation. Utah is kind of similar. Um, you know, it's going to be a big sales and marketing hub for us. I think that, uh, the talent here, like from a, a salary perspective, isn't that much cheaper. Um, in some cases it's basically the same because great talent is expensive everywhere, but I think like the overhead's very different. And, frankly, half the population out here sold the hardest thing to sell. Um, the Mormon population, you know, they go on their missions for two years and they go, you know, sell religion basically door to door. And so, um, yeah, it was one of those interesting things where we, uh, um, you know, we, we've, we found it's, it, it, it fits us really, really well. And I think we're just going to stay the course basically. What about, I guess, like one level of detail lower on office design or, um, thinking about engineering size of groups or any of that stuff yeah. that maybe we're still too early to think about, but are you thinking about any of that stuff? Yeah. So just in terms of like, you know, yeah, like dynamics and dynamics are huge. Right. And, and we've always, we're pretty like, I don't want to say anti-remote because people are religious about remote work and you know, it's hard to have a, it's like, it's like, you know, sex politics and religion now, like you can't have an opinion on remote without getting you know yelled at. Right. And so, um, I think we're, we're like, not it's, Oh, that's not for us, but it doesn't mean we don't want like flexibility because we want the ability of like, you know, people can work together. And, and obviously like, as you grow, as you get an up in head count, there's, there's always going to be, um, you know, an element of remote, like you look at giant companies, obviously things are like remote because there's so many people. Right. So I think for us, like we were super conscious about, um, you know, we were super conscious about like making sure that we didn't split all the teams across three offices. Like eventually we'll get there, I think. Um, but it's like right now, Rosario and, and, you know, Boston are aligned, Boston, Salt Lake are aligned. Um, and then I think in terms of team dynamics, it's like, you know, we want to like pair people in the right way, but we, at first we were like, all right, Rosario and Boston are going to work not that much together. Right. Because, oh, they need to be in person. And then it was like, that's not really great from like a function perspective. And so we, we've kind of worked on like pairing the right folks. And we're trying to do that on the sales and marketing side with, with um, Salt Lake. But really like for us, what, what the thing has been is like as a forcing function, making sure that oh, this person has to work with someone in Salt Lake because then all of a sudden they have to get their documentation in order. They have to be able to work well together and it actually improves the people they work with in Boston or in their home office as well. Is the, um, I guess, I'm not afraid to, to talk about anti-remote, but I guess like the preference to be in an office maybe as a softer way to say anti-remote sounds sure. like it's something that, it's something that is like, a philosophy or maybe it's company specific. Can you say a little bit more about, you know, what you think is to be gained by being slightly towards the end of, of that belief of being yeah. together in one place? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, collaboration, it's, 
It's not that it's better in person. It's that it's easier to get better collaboration in person. That's a really important distinction because like I, I am, I'm of a belief that you can build a great company in any way. Um, but you have to, it has to be the right thing for you. Right. I think what we've found at least as like a, a an exec team, um, or in a management team is that a lot of us are, are built more for that in-person collaboration or that, you know, higher frequency than, than not. Now, as we've grown, we've had to loosen up on that because it just wasn't realistic when I'm traveling a lot or now that we have multiple offices and things like that. And so we've obviously put the infrastructure that remote teams have to use in certain places to be successful. But I think that, you know, you, you kind of said it best. Like, I, I think at some point it is a preference, right? And, and I think that like, like most things, like, you know, you should never apologize for your preferences as long as obviously they're not, you know, hurting someone else. But it's like, you know, like if, if you want to run a fully remote team, great. Um, if you want to run a fully in-person team, like HubSpot for the longest time refused to open up another office except for Boston. Like that was their big thing. And, you know, I know Wistia has kind of done that and we've all kind of loosened up a little bit on the, those restrictions just because like so many of the products have gotten easier to do things with remote or work from home. But I think also for us, the other thing that we have that some companies don't is we have a multi-product approach and we're doing it before we're a hundred million dollar company. Most of the time, people don't go after multiple products until they're 100 million plus. Um, and we're doing that early. And when you have that surface area, not only from a go-to-market perspective, but from a product perspective, like it actually has a level of complexity. And yes, we could figure out how to use that complexity when we're remote, but it, it, it wasn't the path of least resistance. And so we kind of chose the path of least resistance. At the risk of like a hard transition, just thinking about no just listening to... Um, your growth and opening offices on separate coasts, knowing that it's not the coast and opening a shop in Argentina. Like, how did you learn how to do this? How did you learn how to be a founder or CEO or a leader? Yeah, I think, uh, there's no school. <laughs> That's the, I mean, yeah, there are classes now and stuff like that. I, I think a lot of this comes down to, um, like adversity and getting punched in the face a bunch, like, not really, but like, you know, figuratively, um, I think that a lot of times, like, like what's, what's kind of amazing about being a founder is not that, um, you probably don't necessarily inherently have some of the skills it takes to be a founder when you start. And that's, that's the joy of it. Right. And then as you start to do things, you, you are just kind of like sanded down and polished in terms of like your ability to like handle problems. Because even if you're like three months into a business, you've had to learn basics of payroll, basics of like, for, like taxes, maybe basics of all these other things that you've never had to deal with. And that like builds this muscle of like, well, why can't we try to go do that? Let's go figure it out. And then that creates like the hubris of a founder where you're like, I have this vision, we're going towards it, even though it might not be realistic. But for the most part, what it does is like, okay, so we have this problem, like HubSpot's paying entry-level kids out of school who are talented, don't get me wrong, but they're paying them 140 grand. All right, we can probably compete with that, but that's going to change our timeline immensely. What are other options? Well, we can just try to get volume and find like, you know, the cheaper folks, but HubSpot, EMC, et cetera, are hiring so much, right? So going back to these first principles of like, what are options? And there's always more than one option. There's always more than two options, right? Well, we could do this, we could do this, we could open, you know, and one of the big options was we could do remote, we could do a hub, 
you get a whole host of things. And fortunately, um, with Argentina, like my uh, our, our CPO, my partner, my business partner, he is um, he was originally from there, and he had a buddy who was like a director level engineer. He's like, I don't know, I, I, he he's very he was anti multiple offices, very much so. But he is like, yeah, we can't compete with this. And so it's just like going to those first principles, and I think you learn that very quickly on the job. And if you don't learn that, like you probably don't do well as, as an entrepreneur, as a founder. Um, cause even if you're venture backed and we're a bootstrap company, um, even if you're venture backed, like you have to learn these things, you know, you just have to learn them sometimes faster because that money is making things go quicker than when you're a bootstrap founder and you're trying to get patiently, like build things up. Was there anything that I guess, like the way that I hear that and the way that I would summarize that fits my brain is that it's just like this, ever expanding, like slightly expanding circle of, of comfort. Like maybe it's Mm. daily, maybe it's weekly that you're hit with a new task that you sort of just have to figure out. And then that becomes part of what you know how to do. Is there anything that has come up as you like stretch that has been the hardest or that you just have struggled with? Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, everything, right. Cause like the thing is, is when you're, when you're expanding that level of comfort, it doesn't necessarily mean you're good at those things. It just means like you've had a comfort, like, okay, great. I'm going to ask to add three days of work somehow to make this thing work. Right. Um, because I'm not good at it and I can't do it in six hours like someone else could. Right. So I think that for me, like I used to fix bugs, you know, I used to do stuff in, in the code base. I never should have been doing those things, but you know, you got to get on stack overflow and, you know, ask your friends who are developers questions and, you know, bribe them with lunch to come help you with things and like things like that. And I think that, um, that's, so, so there's, there's some of those things. I think some of the other things are like you, you what I had to learn, I think, you know, in the past couple of years is, um, like you, you do end up having to specialize in some way. Now it's specializing in, in a kind of a general thing, like what type of like CEO are you going to be? Are you going to be the product CEO? Or are you going to be the go-to-market CEO? Um, and I'm speaking about CEO specifically. I think CPOs have to do this too. I think CMO, like everyone's got to specialize in some way. But I think that you you always hold on to that first principle thinking, or you should hold on to that first principle thinking, so that you know when stuff hits the fan and you know that one person who is critical like quits or you know has to leave or you know gets sick or something like that you can still jump in and like solve that problem, not as great as they can. Um, and that also takes like a certain level of like managing insecurity and managing like your ego because you're like, I know that I'm going to be worse at this than they were. I just, it has to get done. So yeah, I think some, something specifically like product engineering, um, you know, I, I, I know engineering from a data science perspective, very much not from like a full stack perspective at all. Um, and then I think some of the other things that, that I have found is, Um, we've plugged a number of holes, uh, in the business just by, oh, like Patrick will just take care of that. Or Facundo will take care of that. Or Peter will just take care of that. And then it becomes super obvious, like where our ceiling is on those things. And it's, it's kind of weird sometimes. And I'm sure you've seen this where like you, you do something like not so great, but it's like good enough for a long time. And you basically are, you're, you're, you're almost like not hiring to replace yourself early enough because you're like, ah, that'll be fine, right? And then the whole business, especially as you're growing, all of a sudden starts to suffer because you're you're like, oh yeah, we really should have hired that person for that role two years ago. And some of the problems we're now facing is because we didn't hire that person two years ago. And so it's like a constant push and pull with those types of things. Can we hit a little bit of uh, the decision to bootstrap versus raise? Yeah, totally. 
Um, I, you know, what's kind of funny. Like there, there are people, normally the people who are super religious about bootstrapping and super religious about raising money. Um, they're, they're historically either the VCs, um, or they're the people who like have tiny companies, which is fine, right? Like it's totally fine to have like, you know, I think software companies are going to become the new corner stores. You know, it's like, yeah, like I have a million dollar a year company. I'm doing really, really well. And like, that's fantastic. It's such a better small business from a margin perspective than, you know, a corner store. Right. Um, and you don't have to like, you know, staff it right. You know, in certain ways, but I think that for us, like it, it wasn't as much of a decision as it was, you know, we just kind of didn't, we knew it was an option, but we didn't, I I'm a first time founder. I've never raised money before. Right. The, the previous company um, between Google and working here was um, a venture back company, but I was never involved in like any of the, the raising of the money or anything like that. And so for me, it was more, I don't know how to do that. Well, that's not the path of least resistance, right? The path of least resistance is like, let's send some sales emails. Let's learn about this. Let's send a, a marketing email, these types of things. And thankfully, um, our, our ACV, our ARPU, our LTV was high enough that it could basically fund the business. And I think, you know, if we raised money early on, it actually would have been a mistake because we would have gone really quickly in the wrong direction because we were going slowly in wrong directions. We were able to course correct. Um, and then there's an argument to be made that probably a couple years in, we should have raised money because we could have kind of gone faster. Um, and there's an argument now that we should raise money. I think my, my framework has always been, which is like the classic framework is, don't raise money if you don't know what you're going to do with it. Um, and then when you do know what you do with it, make sure that you're in a place where you can like implement it and you're not being held back or, or that you're actually being held back by not having the money. Right. And it's incredibly difficult to pick those spots. Um, and so I'm not saying like, Oh, it's magical. Like, and normally like hindsight's 2020 20 here, but yeah, it's been one of those things that, you know, we've had the opportunity. Um, we haven't raised, we kind of think about it. Um, and <laughs> would have been nice to do it six months ago, um, versus now. And then we'll probably raise at some point though, just given, you know, given that it's hard to be a big company without raising cash because time becomes just too big of an issue. What does it feel like? I guess, um, LinkedIn has profit well at, I think 82 or 83 employees. Like, what does it feel like to have bootstrapped your way to build an organization, that has three offices and 82 other folks for a first time founder. Like, what does that feel like? Yeah. I think that what's kind of crazy is it doesn't, it, it feels different, but it doesn't feel different than when it was just me in a room 18 hours a day. Right. Like when I was like, basically, I'm essentially a solo founder. There's a fun, complicated story with, with our, with how we founded. We had some part-time co-founders who were kind of in the business, kind of out of the business, but, um, yeah, it was, it was just me in a room a lot of times for 18 hours a day. And like, I, I think it was one of those things where um, the nature of being a founder, and I'd argue just an exec, is that you're always looking in front of you. So it's one of those things where it's like really hard to like take a step back. And when you when you just positioned it that way, I got like a nice little feeling in my chest, which is great. But like, it's already gone because I'm like, yeah, it's like, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I got to go to the next thing. Right. Which I, I think feels or may come off ungrateful. And it's not that I'm ungrateful. It's just more of like you know, I, I think I feel, I, I feel secure in the sense of we're not going to go to zero and we're not going to be a complete failure. Right. And I think that that feeling, I definitely had that when we were like three people, 10 people, 20 people, et cetera. Um, now we kind of are holding on to something and worst case scenario, we, you know, pull it all the way down to the rails where it's just me and our, our exec team essentially. Right. But I think that it's, it's really hard not to 
just keep going. Right. And, and that's probably screwed up. Like that's probably really messed up. And I know I'm not the only one who feels that way, but it's just like one of those things that's like, it's, it's so hard to like contextualize. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, there is some pride there. Like, I'm, I'm not going to say there isn't some pride there. I think it's, it's more of, I'm always thinking, you know, healthily or unhealthily, oh man, we can't miss our opportunity. We got to go, like, we got to get to the next level. Um, Hey, how do we like increase revenue? Like all those types of things. Yeah. Just, um, from, it's obviously much easier from an outside perspective to take a look at the optics and be like, you've kind of made it, you know, you're, you're eight years in or nine years in and you're at 83 people and you've never raised, like, that's a big deal. But I can also see like, my guess is that kind of divorced from reality or pausing to to sit there and feel that stuff serves you pretty well too. Well, yeah, but it's like, it's also one of the, I mean, it makes you like insufferable to be around. <laughs> like I know like, and, and this is where like, you got to know your strengths, right? I know I'm like very much not a small win guy. And, and like, I've, I've had to learn that, right? Like, you know, like, Hey, why are we celebrating that? Like that kind of thing. Like, Oh, it's going to send the wrong message. Right. Like, and we have like Peter Zotto, who is the first, first person we hired, you know, more of my co-founder than anyone. Like he, he like, you know, he's a small win guy. He's like a small win guy, big win guy, like good cheerleader, all that kind of stuff. And so we've, we've kind of butt heads over the years over like, should we celebrate this? Should we not? And now we're in like a good place of that. But I think that that's like, you know, it does serve you well because you, you, you are like never satisfied, which again, like, long-term, like, is that healthy? Like, I don't know, like we'll see. And, you know, it's one of those things where, I mean, it definitely has put stress on like, you know, personal relationships and things like that. But, um, yeah, long story short, I think it's, it's, I also realize that that's kind of me. Like, I don't know about you, but like, I'm, I'm a big vocation guy when it comes to the company, meaning like, this is my vocation, right? Kind of like, you know, my dad was a, was a union tenor, like he was a sheet metal worker. And like, this kind of guy that like, he would come home and he would read books about being a tenor, right? Just to get better and better. Like, and it was just like work just never stopped, right? It was his life and his identity. And I think for me, that's like a big thing too. Like, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. Like, you know, I could be a bricklayer. I could be doing this. I'm, I'm, this is my vocation. And, and I think it's a big part of my identity. And that's what makes it hard to like, you know, be like, okay, we're like, we've made it. We're good. But don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not appreciative of like one, everyone who's helped us, all the work that's gone in, all that kind of stuff, just because I think that, you know, we, we just want to keep doing better, I think is the big thing. Yeah. It makes good sense. Um, do you think it would be too much of a time machine to try to think about sitting alone in a room for 18 hours a day and, and thinking about first sales, like first people to, to open up their checkbook and give you guys money or any like big screw ups from the really early days? If it is, we can, uh, we can pick a different spot. Oh no, it's good. I think, uh, so litmus, uh, the software company in Boston, Paul Farnell, uh, founder and, and, and CEO there. He's since moved on, but he, uh, yeah, it was a $1,600 check. It was the first money in, um, for <laughs> what we now charge a lot more than $1,600 for I mean, obviously it's very different than what, what it was back then, but, um, yeah, that was the first, the first cash. And I think that was, you know, that was cool. I think in some of the hardships, like we, like, there's also a lot of naivete that went into this. So you had like one thing to keep in mind, I started the company when I was 25. Right. And so it's one of those things where I like very much didn't know, Oh, that is a hardship or that isn't a hardship. Like it was very much like, Oh, this is just reality. Right. And, and thankfully like, like no wife, no kids, nothing like that at the time. And so it's like one of those things where like, I, 
I couldn't have done that, um, you know, with probably with those, those obligations, it just would have been probably too much, but yeah, in terms of hardships, I mean, probably all the standard ones. Um, I think the, the one that like is the big one is, um, basically a couple years into the business. Um, so this will get a little deep for a second. I'm totally comfortable talking about it and everything's fine now, but I, uh, I, I had, so I had cancer when I was at Google, um, best place to get sick. Um, and it also was like what I call like the wussy form. So, you know, it was scary and I went through the whole, I'm going to die and all that kind of stuff, like feeling right. I was never close to death just to be super clear. But, um, I, I basically had a resurgence of that. So I got cancer for a second time, um, a couple years into the business. And that was like, kind of like an insane, like it was, it was, it wasn't the worst time in, in the company's history to get it, but it was like not a great time. Like we were right around like 20 people. And so it was one of those things where, you know, when you're at 20 people, everyone's still on the front lines. There's no redundancies, like nothing can move. Um, and thankfully it was caught early enough and everything, but that was like, that was, that was emotionally harder than I thought it was going to be. Like physically it was like kind of okay. Like no surgery or anything like that. Um, but it was one of those things that like in the business, when you're building a, like, and we were very much a cash flow business cause we have to be. Um, and all of a sudden that happens and you're a critical part on a number of levels and you're the guy or, ga- or the gal who jumps in when like there's a fire, like, and then you got to go through that five times a week. That was, that was definitely a really, really tough point in the history. Yeah, man. I was looking for like a mistake in positioning or like <laughs> or, or something. I dropped, similar. I dropped the C-bomb for you, Tom. No, no. Yeah. Everything's good though. I always like to point that out because I've, I've gotten very comfortable talking about it. I wasn't as comfortable with it because it, you know, just didn't feel like right, but it was one of those things where I've, I've learned a lot from it. And that's why I mean, like, I like to talk about it just because it's like, you know, it, it really contextualizes everything, especially in a business. Like, you know, I don't know. We all had this point in our lives where, you know, we kind of grow up. Um, the first time this happened, I grew up a lot. And the second time it happened, it like, it makes you probably like insufferably impatient in some ways, but it also like lowers your pension for BS in a good way. Um, and not in like an aggressive way, just in a like, Oh, like I can choose my friends. I don't have to hang out with, you know, these people who are like doing, like doing things that I just, I'm not a fan of doing, or like I can, you know, I can, you know, it's okay that I want to use my job as my vocation and, and my purpose. Right. And so, yeah, I think that that's, that was what was really crystallizing through that experience. I don't want to risk moving on from that. Oh, no, are you good? You know, um, just wanted to create some space to say that that's, it's really heavy, man. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one other like history point in the organization, I had a tough time pinpointing when it happened, what, and maybe how big of it a deal it was, was the rebranding from price intelligently to profit. Well, mm. you talk about that or like what was going on behind the scenes when that happened? Yeah. So we, we started off with price intelligently because one of our, our board members and in, in the, the, one of my co-founders in the beginning, he, um, he had the domain price intelligently and we were going to do something in pricing. Right. So we're like, Oh, cool. Like, but, but it was one of those things where our thesis expanded like really quickly. So, um, it was just pricing and then it was pricing for SaaS and subscription companies. And then what we did through our research is we kind of, like, we were, you know, the shortest version of this is we were helping a company that's about to IPO with their, um, pricing. And we discovered like this outside vendor that they were calculating, uh, their churn and their um, MRR, their monthly recurring revenue, just completely wrong. 
And so like a CFO taking two other companies public, you know, this is his third company he's taking public and he's calculating like the most basic metrics incorrectly, right? Like it's kind of like, we're like, holy cow, this is like the idea. And we were looking for, um, so our price intelligence software, it, 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 it's, it was pure software and then it quickly morphed into a tech enabled service just because pricing is one of those things where people want to talk to humans, right? About like, how do I fix this? Mm-hmm. And so even if we gave them all the data and it was like, you know, picture perfect and they knew exactly what they should do. They still wanted like help as, as like, Hey, can you come talk to us? And we're like, no VCs hate services. And they're like, we'll pay you money. And we're like, okay, cool. So um, that's kind of how that morphed. But we were looking for like a better way to collect data, something that was a little bit more, um, you know, cyclical within the business um, rather than these like research, you know, kind of projects that we were doing. And so this, combined with that, that scenario with the CFO turned into like, oh, well, you know, we can put together this, you know, unified theory of, of subscription growth. That's really what we want, but we need to get this data, right? And the first thing was financial data. So then we started this metrics product um, that I referenced before. And um, then it was like, well, this isn't pricing exactly. Like we can kind of like jerry rig it into pricing and there's a vision of how this is going to tie back to pricing, but it's not like it's a metrics product, right? Um, and it was like, how do we fit this into the positioning? Well, it kind of became obvious, you know, even without this early on that we were going to have to change our name at some point because price intelligently is great, but it's so specific to pricing. Um, in addition to that, it's just a long domain, um, you know, that type of thing to, to kind of deal with. And so we were like, all right, what does it look like? Well, you know, every other name that we we're thinking about kind of was in this category of being, you know, too general or vague where you didn't know what they did. Um, and so we kind of, you know, we found, I think we were just sitting around with dinner one night and we were like, what are, what are all the words we can combine and all this other stuff. And then, and then like looked at like how expensive are the domains. And I think ProfitWell was like 400 bucks, something like that. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up grabbing that. And I think that the positioning was, the problem was, is that what we learned from everyone who's changed their name and you should never change your name. It's like the worst thing ever. Um, everyone we talked to was basically like, Hey, you're going to think this is like a one-time thing. Hey, we're this company now. And here's the press release and this type of thing. And they're like, you're going to be doing this for 24 months. Like you're going to be describing to people and you're going to have people who have known you for eight years in the company who are going to go, wait, what is this price? I thought you guys were priced intelligently. And then you're going to have people who have never even heard of price intelligently, but have now heard of the new domain um, or the new product. And they're going to get confused and everyone's going to say, are you two companies, all this stuff. And so we, we kind of, we probably took that too much to heart and we're like, oh, we don't have to like do this very formally. We've never announced the name change. <laughs> um, we can just like do this as a slow like burn. Right. Um, and there was a, there was a, there was going to be like a reveal or like kind of like a video or something like that. But what ended up happening is we were like, cool, change LinkedIn, change the emails. You know, every time it comes up, try to explain like why it happened, these types of things. And now I think we're at a pretty good place where we have a few steps to still do, but we're at a point where like now we're on podcasts and people will be like, oh yeah, it's ProfitWell and things like that. And I don't have to correct them and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, not a fun experience. Um, we learned a lot, but the hardest part was very few companies go through this. Um, and so we probably didn't, you know, follow best practices that we all should have, but it's one of those things where we're kind, we're at least on the other side of it. We're not done with it, but it'll, it'll get there. Give us another like eight years and it'll be fine. How long, uh, I might've missed this earlier in the conversation, but how long have you been in Salt Lake city? Um, like six months, not even, um, 
and really since January, because um, I travel a ton, do a lot of conferences, stuff like that. And so, you know, the fall, like basically November, December, even October. So technically I bought the house in October, but I really wasn't out here until January, um, you know, that much at least. Is that long enough to figure out if there's anything you miss about being in Boston? Yeah, there's a funny story. So I, when we were looking at houses, um, I asked the realtor, I was like, oh, I, like where, where's like a little area, like a little like area where there's like a bunch of coffee shops and like bakeries and stuff like that, right? Like kind of like Charles Street or like, you know, over in Bay Village or something like that. And like, so she takes us to this place, it's called Ninth and Ninth, which is kind of like a hipstery area that's not downtown of Salt Lake. And it's like a, maybe like two blocks crossed. So there's like two blocks and then two blocks where there's like shops and stuff. And I go to her and I was like, yeah, but like, where's like, you know, like in Boston and she had known Boston, you know, like the Beacon Hill, like six, six blocks of, you know, like bunch of stuff. Right. She's like, this is it. She's like, if you're, if you're not downtown, this is it. Um, and even downtown, everything's kind of spread out. Cause there's a lot more space here just given, given we're in the West. And so, um, yeah, so I kind of miss like, just kind of like, walking out of my house and like, or my apartment in this case, just walking a few blocks to flower and then walking another few blocks to the gym or wherever. Right. Um, I think from the ecosystem perspective, I think like, you know, I've been in Boston enough, like before, you know, we were all in lockdown with COVID. I was, I was literally in Boston like every week. Um, you know, I was kind of doing the, the back and forth kind of style. Um, I don't think that was going to continue in general, but I think I'll be in Boston enough not to miss it too much. Uh, last question, I guess, and, and it might be a couple minutes depending on where you want to take it, but thinking about like where you spend your time and you just mentioned tons of travel, you know, you speak quite a bit, like there is a pretty serious set of volumes of, of recorded things and video that you've done out there and, um, your social media gets a lot of engagement. Like how do you figure out where to spend some of that time? And like, when you think about that, what are you hoping to get out of it? Yeah, it's a good question. I think for us, um, we, the problems we solve as a, as a business for our customers, they're typically not, um, and this is, this is a problem with the business, uh, that we're working on kind of positioning is that they're, they're not the things they have high impact. Like pricing has a really high impact on your revenue. And so does like your retention, but they're not the things you naturally think of, right? Like when you're thinking of like solving business problems, right? It's not like a CRM where you're like, oh, I'm going to go evaluate 12 of them. And so there's a bunch of lead flow coming in, you know, for leads and stuff like that. And so for us, evangelism, brand and content have always been a big thing. Um, and they've done, you know, well for us over the years. And so I think that that's, that's like the starting point of the foundation of why I do like a lot of content and things like that. And then it comes down to, you know, what's, what's the, what's the highest, uh, impact thing I can do for the business. Right. So in Q1, like I wasn't doing a lot of traveling except to the Boston office because it was, um, you know, we were, we were rejiggering kind of our structure of our go-to-market team. We were doing a bunch of recruiting and hiring and we were, um, obviously doing, we were finishing 2020 planning, right. Which has all been thrown out the window, which is exciting. So, but it's, uh, so that was like a big thing. And I think that we've been, we've done at least in the past, like 12 months, I don't know if we did it for the first like six, six, seven years as well as we should have, but we're pretty honest about like internally, okay, is this the highest impact thing for me to be doing right now? 
right? Like, so right now in, we have this really unique data set with the COVID stuff going on. And, um, you know, we can, we can publish that so people can have like daily, you know, data on like how things are going with subscription and SaaS companies. And, you know, people really want that and they want to get on webinars and they want to talk about, Hey, this is what's going on. And I have this problem. And what do you think about this? Or is there any data on that? And so, that is one of the highest impact things I can do. So, you know, I've done, you know, seven webinars this week. We're doing, you know, another dozen next two weeks. Like, and it's just one of those things that it's, it's helpful. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just really thinking through like, what's the highest impact thing. And, um, what's happened started happening last year. Cause we didn't really have a marketing team until the beginning of last year, um, or like tail end of 2018. Um, I was just the marketing team. And then we had a couple of like people reported to me to help us stuff. But we started realizing last year is like, this can't scale. Like I can't be the face. I can't be doing all the content. So now like we have a team, right. And I'm getting kind of fired from different things. And so, because it's not going to be the highest impact thing I do. And so, but yeah, that's, I think that's what a lot of people just have to keep reminding themselves is like, what is the highest impact thing that I can be doing right now? And just constantly like every month, at least just like reevaluate, reevaluating things. Um, and you know, that's the, that's the fun part of being a founder and executive. Any closing uh, thoughts or anything that you want to get in before we wrap up? Uh, not really. We didn't talk about Brady or Gronk, man. I don't know what's going on there. Um, yeah, yeah, man. That's so wild. And like the uh, the Jordan documentary getting released early has been like such a bonus of, of something to look forward to and like get online and bitch about or reading what everybody else is talking about. But um yeah, the Brady Gronk stuff is absolutely bananas. I think it's going to be so fun to watch. You know, like it, obviously, um, I've never like lost any sleep over what what the professional sports teams in Boston do. But I think I it would not. just be like, yeah, just fun to see people lose their minds over what might happen. Yeah, it's been funny because the the diehards I know, like the ones who it's kind of big portion of their life, they're kind of like, you know, still got Belichick. Right. And like, it's been funny. They're like, yeah, Gronk's gone. Don't care. Belichick, you know, we all know how that, how that conversation went. He's like, yeah, give us a fourth rounder. Right. That'll be the special teams guy that basically wins the Super Bowl for us. So, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, uh, just to wrap up, man, thanks so much. I know uh, things are kind of crazy right now. Hopefully, I can get this out um, maybe early next week. And it was just really enjoyable to carve out some time to chat. Absolutely, brother. Let me know if I can help and uh, let me know when we can uh, upload and all or social and all that kind of fun stuff. Cool. Thanks, Patrick. All right. Thanks, Talk bro. to you soon, man.